Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, my name is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. I believe in no small way that the classics inspire us to pursue our own humble contributions as well as the preservation of the texts themselves and the experiences that they can unlock for others. It was with this in mind that I set out to build Classical Wisdom, our free newsletter dedicated to ancient Greece and Rome, as well as our new podcast, Classical Wisdom Speaks. If you're interested in learning more about Classical Wisdom or our podcast, please visit our website, classicalwisdom.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 135, The Faces of Akhenaten. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Rather than moving the story forward, we're going to pause to consider the reign of Akhenaten in the big picture. The king is a pivotal figure in the history of Egypt's royal household, and Akhenaten's initiatives, his policies and decisions, had ripple effects for many generations that followed. The king was an influential figure, for good and for ill, and in order to appreciate what his reign represents, I thought we should discuss his legacies. Some of these legacies are specific to ancient Egyptian history, but Akhenaten also influences people in our own era. The king has inspired artists and philosophers ever since his rediscovery. So, today I want to talk a little bit about these things. This episode is going to be looser than usual. I'm not following a predetermined script. Instead, I have a number of talking points that I want to go through and sort of follow my own initiative on them. I've structured these talking points according to various themes, but I figure Akhenaten is so influential and yet so elusive that it's really impossible to nail these down in a firm, specific manner. So today I'm just going to talk for a little while about Akhenaten, what he represents, and how we imagine him today. This episode is brought to you by Georgia, Matthew, and Allison, who joined the podcast Patreon as overseers. Thank you very much for your support. I appreciate it greatly, and you help keep me in housing, food, and coffee. May the Aten shine upon you and your efforts throughout your life. May Aten give you a long and beautiful legacy. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the story. Akhenaten was dead. His reign is at its end. Whew, that took a long time to cover. 
The king is a difficult figure, and I wound up talking about him a lot longer than I intended. I realised that was not everyone's cup of tea, and I hope the story did not drag too much while we tackled this particular king. If you did feel that way, rest assured, the remainder of the 18th dynasty, and then the Ramesid period that follows, will be much faster in terms of the podcast narrative. The Amarna period, the reigns of Akhenaten and Amunhotep III before him, are uniquely complicated sections of Egyptological history. Not only do we have a huge variety of complicated events, we also have a vast tapestry of evidence that records it. So this makes it very difficult to move through it quickly. Now that Akhenaten is dead, we can start moving things forward faster. I would compare the next phase of the podcast to the Old Kingdom and Middle Kingdom in terms of its pace. Much snappier, much more concise. We will still have a wonderful array of topics to discuss, but in terms of the events of different reigns, things move forward a lot more quickly. So, we are finally out of the quicksand. Now, let's take a moment to consider Akhenaten in the big picture, because his reign is going to have a lingering effect on many generations that follow. Hopefully, it will become clear in time how significant Akhenaten is. Although many of the king's initiatives and reforms were rolled back by later generations, the fact that they did that, and the way they did it, does suggest that Akhenaten had a long, lingering impact. In that sense, it's fair to say that Akhenaten is one of the most important rulers to ever grace the thrones of Egypt. The king was influential, and his decisions rippled out for generations to impact many aspects of the Egyptian royal household. So, yeah, it took a long time to tell his story. But we're done now, and with future episodes, we can understand why it took so long, how important this king is, and what he represents. In terms of his visible legacy, Akhenaten's influence is obviously felt most strongly in religion. Many of the king's initiatives and his decisions were ultimately tied to his view of the sun god Aten and that deity's place in society. Akhenaten worshipped Aten to a greater extreme than any pharaoh had done before or ever would do again. Aten rose higher in this period than any god before him. Even Amun-Ra, king of the gods, did not have quite the supremacy that Akhenaten bestowed on Aten. In that sense, the king's religious policies are the centerpiece of his reign, the ones that gain the most attention, and which seem to feed in to many of his decisions. In terms of long-lasting impact, Akhenaten's focus on Aten is not going to last that long. Within a couple of generations, at most, Aten would return to his secondary minor status. The god itself would endure, he would be referenced by later kings, and he shows up in temples, in a more traditional form. But Akhenaten's initiative does have long-lasting impacts on the way that pharaohs represented the deities, and the relationship between god and king. Throughout Akhenaten's reign, he really emphasised his personal relationship to Aten. 
The king presented himself as the son of the sun god, and he made it clear that he was the centerpiece of Akhenaten's love. In artistic scenes, Akhenaten is the only one on whom Aten bestows his life and his care. Secondary figures like Nefertiti and the royal princesses get their share here and there, but in terms of non-royal individuals, there really is nothing. Akhenaten was the centre of Akhenaten's religion, and his relationship to Aten was exclusive. This is why the king called himself Wa-Enra, the sole one, or the exclusive one, of Ra. This idea would trickle down to later generations, and encourage future kings to kind of double down on their relationship to the gods. Although deities like Amun-Ra or Ra-Horakti had been gaining prominence in the 18th dynasty, Akhenaten took those trends to an extreme, and after his death, many of the ideas he pushed would actually find their way into standard pharaonic propaganda. We start to see this most strongly with kings like Horemheb and the Ramessids, who would start to present themselves as one chosen by Amun-Ra, one favoured by that god above all others. Obviously, these ideas are not unique to Akhenaten, but the king's decisions did change the way that pharaohs represented themselves, particularly when it came to the gods. We also see this in the economics of divine worship. Akhenaten made a big song and dance about offerings to Aten, about the abundance he bestowed on the sun god. In return, Aten would grace Egypt with his gifts. He would bring life to the Nile Valley and to the earth as a whole. So Akhenaten really emphasised a reciprocal relationship between the king and the god. This, again, would impact future generations. And we will see rulers like Ramesses II making huge donations to the temples of different deities. Although earlier kings had obviously worshipped the gods and given them lavish offerings, the trend seems to be that after Akhenaten, pharaohs give more and more to the temples. If you visit Karnak Temple today, you may be overwhelmed by the grandeur of the monument, the size of the structures, and the impressive elements that go into its decoration. The thing is that most of what you see at Karnak comes from after Akhenaten. At the time of Akhenaten, Karnak was a lot smaller than it is today, and it was only in subsequent generations that the enormous pylons and the huge courtyards and various shrines really started to multiply. Karnak was impressive when Akhenaten came to power, but in the generations that followed, that is when it really grew into the behemoth we see today. Going along with this, Akhenaten's devotion to Aten and the abundance of his gifts will lead to future rulers bestowing enormous wealth on the temples. We will see this in various texts that record the land and agricultural possessions that temples administered and owned. Some temples, like Karnak or Medinet Habu, would grow immensely wealthy in the decades and centuries after Akhenaten. Many of the king's decisions, his favouritism towards Aten, 
can be seen as a trend that really picked up pace in the 19th dynasty. So again, even though Akhenaten's religious policies kind of diminished and got rolled back, many of the practices that he used and the little ideas he put forth did actually continue and other rulers used them to justify their own authority. These kind of trends would continue for centuries after the king's death. And although we should not credit Akhenaten with all of them, the king does seem to have impacted the relationship between a ruler and the temples. This happened in philosophical and economic terms. So, long story short, Akhenaten's religion, his love for Aten, does actually linger in the political consciousness of the Egyptian royal household. Even if the deities might change from Aten to Amun-Ra and so forth, the king's policies did have an impact on future generations. Of course, many of Akhenaten's religious policies and the propaganda he put forth about Aten ultimately had a lot to do with his sense of a king's authority. In some respects, Akhenaten could represent the zenith of a sort of centralization of power. Much of Akhenaten's propaganda emphasizes the role of the king as the central figure in the world and in Egypt. Akhenaten really promoted himself as the source of all abundance, the one who brought fertility to the Nile Valley, who encouraged the renewal of life each morning. Because the king was the favoured son of Aten, and the only one whom Aten favoured, that gave Akhenaten a unique grasp of divine authority. In theory, there were no challengers to Akhenaten's power, no one who could call themselves the king's equal. Whether that was the reality behind the scenes, we do not know. But certainly, Akhenaten's vision emphasized the role of the king as the central figure of the Egyptian government and the world itself. Once again, future rulers would use this idea in slightly different ways to display and emphasize their own authority. We've already touched on the relationship between king and god, and between the king and temples. But other aspects of Akhenaten's administration and public image would impact future generations. One thing that Akhenaten made a big deal of was the military. This is actually something I did not get to discuss in the historical episodes. Partly because there's not much material to go on, and partly because it really becomes important towards the end of Dynasty 18. We will come back to Akhenaten's relationship with the army at an appropriate moment. But for now, let me just summarize by saying, Akhenaten's artistic images, his propaganda, frequently invoke the idea of soldiers and massive bodyguards surrounding the king. It is not clear exactly what this represents. Was the king simply showing off his wealth and his power? Or was there a more sinister edge to it? Did Akhenaten show off his soldiers because they were a critical part of his public policy? Again, we cannot be sure, and I will discuss this question in more detail in a future episode. 
For now, it's enough to know that Akhenaten kind of raised the profile of soldiers and the army. At first, this was relatively minor, the king was still central and the soldiers were beneath him. But starting in the reign of Tutankhamun, that begins to change a little bit. Soldiers, and particularly their leaders, the generals, start to become more prominent in the decades after Akhenaten dies. Eventually, we see the soldiers and the generals gaining so much power that one of them, Horemheb, actually becomes the pharaoh. This leads to the 19th dynasty, when figures who were formerly military officials become the heirs to the throne, and pharaonic rulers start to promote their sons, their heirs, as military leaders first and foremost. So Akhenaten's reign sees the rise, or at least the increased visibility, of soldiers and the army. Whatever the king was trying to achieve, this would eventually have a knock-on effect, as certain parts of the government, and then the king themselves, actually came from the military class. So Akhenaten's religious policies emphasised his relationship with the sun god, and his focus on authority, the centralization of power, led to some interesting effects later on in history. Of course, Akhenaten might not have intended any of that, but his policies did have long rippling effects. Some decisions kind of snowballed and changed the face of pharaonic rule. So in terms of kingship, what power and authority represent in ancient Egypt? Akhenaten is a significant figure. It's unclear what exactly he was trying to achieve, but it is tempting to read many of his reforms in terms of a power grab, an attempt to centralise authority within the hands of the pharaoh. If that's the case, then it casts Akhenaten's religion in a quite different light. It makes the Aten seem less like a universal giver, and more like a tool that Akhenaten used to justify his grab for power. I don't think that interpretation is entirely accurate. I think there's a huge range of evidence that indicates Akhenaten's beliefs were genuine, or at the very least, he honestly believed in this function. Nevertheless, it is an important question. Perhaps some of Akhenaten's beliefs were more political than philosophical. Another significant aspect of Akhenaten's reign is the extreme prominence of the royal women. Throughout the 18th dynasty, we have seen powerful queens and princesses who have political authority and influence events on their own initiative. Akhenaten's reign, at least in terms of the artistic material, seems to be the culmination of that trend. Figures like Nefertiti and Merit Aten, Akhenaten's daughter, are far more prominent than any figure before them, with the exception of Queen T. Ultimately, this period of Akhenaten and his father before him seems to be one in which women of the royal household are incredibly prominent in the propaganda, and it's possible that they held genuine political influence. Of course, there is a lot of behind-the-scenes material that we have lost, many relationships and discussions and negotiations between different people. But from what we see in the art, it seems like Akhenaten's reign, and his father's just before, 
is the high watermark of female influence in the royal household. Moving forward, though, the queens of Egypt will fade into the background for a while. Subsequent generations, particularly kings like Horemheb and the Ramessids, sort of limited the visibility of the queens. The royal women might have had power, and we will meet individuals who are noteworthy, but in terms of the art, the propaganda, the royal women are definitely much less prominent after Akhenaten than they were before. Again, this might be an outcome of Akhenaten's policies, or there may be other factors that we don't know about. Long story short, though, his reign is easily the most important in terms of royal women and their visible expressions of power. After this period, the queens become secondary figures once again. Their authority, if it existed, becomes more hidden. That will last for a few centuries, and take a long time to change. Akhenaten's legacy is complex, and we have more to discuss. But it's time for a quick break. See you in a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Chapter 2. In many ways, Akhenaten seems like an unusual ruler. He instituted large-scale changes, particularly in religion or art, and some of these ideas seemed novel, even shocking, at least from a historical perspective. But there are continuities between Akhenaten's reign and what came before. To start with, let's consider Akhenaten's relationship with the elites. When the king came to power, the high-ranking and wealthy members of Egyptian society were powerful, influential figures. This had always been the case to a certain degree. Egypt was an agrarian society, and people with wealth, with farmland, tended to rise quite high in the society. But when it comes to the power of the king, we can determine a lot by how visible the elites become at different periods. The ways they display their power, their influence, can suggest facets of the Egyptian government and administration. In this sense, Akhenaten's reign is another interesting period. During the reign of Akhenaten, and some of his predecessors, we see elites start to become more prominent in an artistic sense. Their tombs become larger, more ornate, and the artistic scenes on their walls become more lavish. As a result, we get a greater sense of the wealth in Egyptians' upper-class society, the 1% of their population. Elites of the 18th dynasty seem to be wealthy, influential figures, 
and the way they present themselves suggests that many of them had close access to the king and might have been an influence on his decisions. This is one of those questions that's hard to analyze because a lot of their power was going to be social, the kind of soft power that does not necessarily appear in monuments. A person with political influence, a person who has many friends, might not necessarily leave the kind of record that proves that influence. Nevertheless, we can say that Akhenaten's reign is noteworthy for the elites that lived under this king. Individuals like Ai, who may have been the father of Nefertiti, seem to be quite prominent in the king's regime. Ai and his contemporaries had lavish tombs at Amarna, massive burial halls that, if they were completed, would have been some of the most beautiful in the country. In their tombs, these individuals emphasized their close relationship to Akhenaten, the favor he bestowed upon them, and the access they had to the king. Now, Akhenaten does seem to have controlled these relationships a little bit more explicitly than his predecessors. Tombs at Amarna, belonging to the elites, make a big deal about how Akhenaten favored that individual, how the king chose them from among the rabble and elevated them to high status. Some scholars suggest that this represents Akhenaten kind of reforming the government, replacing older figures with new families, people he liked. That might be true, but at the same time, these artistic scenes kind of reveal something more fundamental. They suggest that for Akhenaten, the idea he wanted to cultivate was that everyone depended on him. The king wanted to centralize authority, the king wanted to hold all the power, and his relationship to the elites seems to be one of patron and client, master and servant. This is a tricky topic that requires a lot of investigation to fully explore, but long story short, it seems like Akhenaten emphasized the idea that elites and wealthy individuals depended on him for their place in society. Whether that actually matched the reality or not is probably impossible to tell. Too many things have been lost to reveal that. But it does seem like Akhenaten emphasized this idea that he, the king, supreme above all, was the source of wealth, of life, and of favor. In that sense, Akhenaten's reign does, again, represent a kind of centralization of authority. In this case, it represents the ruler trying to get greater control over the elites. Whether that was intentional or simply a byproduct of his religious beliefs, we can't quite be sure. I would suggest that it was intentional based on some of the texts that we see in these tombs, but again, there could be some gaps. The important thing to know is that Akhenaten really emphasized the idea that people, at all levels of society, depended on him for their wealth, for their position, and for their livelihoods. Again, this would have a long-lasting impact on future generations. The power of the elites would not diminish once Akhenaten died. It would change, and different families would become more prominent than they had been before, 
but fundamentally the relationship stayed quite similar. Moving forward, kings of Egypt would negotiate their power with elites a little bit more, but they would also stress the idea that people depended on them for every aspect of their lives. In that sense, Akhenaten's initiative does have a long-lasting impact. But, to be fair, that trend was already happening when Akhenaten came to power. It seems like Akhenaten just capitalized on something that was already happening. He might have tried to steer it in a different direction or use it to his advantage. But ultimately, the relationship between the king and the landed nobility was something that was constantly evolving. This had been happening since the Old Kingdom, or even earlier. I mean, powerful families will always be influential in certain types of state. But Akhenaten changed the language, the imagery of this relationship, very slightly, and future rulers would pick up on that. The next big factor to consider is a little bit more negative. It has to do with Akhenaten's relationship to the empire. When Akhenaten first came to the throne, Egypt theoretically controlled a huge portion of Canaan and Syria. Generations of rulers before him had stamped their political authority over that region, conquering different lands, subjugating various communities, and battling with foreign empires. Around the time of Tutmose IV, Akhenaten's grandfather, and Amunhotep III, Akhenaten's father, that constant stream of campaigns and war had slowed down to a trickle. For a few decades, Egyptian rulers had been a little bit more hands-off with the empire. Everything seemed stable, and they were content to collect the revenue, the taxes, and the prestige that flowed in from the north. Akhenaten continued that trend. He did not change foreign policy in any noticeable way, but he followed the pattern that his father and grandfather had set before. The problem was that Akhenaten came to power at a time when the empire was under threat. Ever since the later years of Amunhotep III, the political situation in Canaan and Syria had started to become more unstable. Local rulers like Abdi Ashirta and Aziru had started to upset the power balance when they tried to expand their kingdoms at the expense of their neighbours. Simultaneously, the great empires in the north and east were changing around this time. Back when the 18th dynasty kings first conquered Canaan and Syria, they were primarily battling with the empire of Mitanni. Mitanni, in what is now Syria and northern Iraq, were a major political influence right up to the reign of Akhenaten. But sometime around Akhenaten, Mitanni began to fade. They lost a lot of their influence, and they began to dwindle into a second-tier power. The reason for this was, quite simply, the Hittites. The Hittites emerged from the land that now we call Turkey. They were a rapidly expanding kingdom, with active rulers and strong military technology at their back. And in previous decades, the Hittites had been slowly building up their power in Turkey, 
and gradually expanding beyond. Ultimately, the Hittites had overcome the Empire of Mitanni and defeated them in large-scale campaigns. When that happened, the power balance in the north changed, and the old empire that Egypt was familiar with was mostly dwindling away. Now, the Hittites were a new, much more aggressive threat on their northern borders. We're going to dive more deeply into the rise of the Hittites in an upcoming episode, but long story short, the Hittites started to press in on the borders of Egypt's empire. They did this directly by attacking vassal kingdoms, and they did it indirectly by encouraging some of those vassals to rebel. Akhenaten seems to have had some difficulty managing this situation. We do not know if the king was disinterested or if he simply lacked the material or skills to appropriately counter the Hittites. But long story short, by the time he died, Akhenaten's empire was a lot more fragile than when he first inherited it. Once again, this would have a ripple effect on later generations. Moving forward, kings like Tutankhamun, Horemheb, and Seti I would need to be a lot more active on the northern borders. They would need to undo the passivity of Akhenaten, Amunhotep III, and Thutmose IV. Once again, they would need to push to attack in order to expand their territory and counter the threat of the Hittites. Again, I don't think we should blame Akhenaten for this specifically. The king seems to have been following a trend, but his management of the foreign policy of the political situation outside of Egypt does suggest that things were not going so well. As a result, future generations would need to be more active, and that would be a good thing sometimes when they were victorious and able to bring in huge amounts of booty. Other times, it would be a negative, when they would nearly lose important battles against their great rival. Again, we'll cover all those stories at the appropriate moment, but for now, it's enough to know that the reign of Akhenaten did mark a turning point in Egyptian foreign policy. His reign, and the couple just before, had been a quiet period for the Egyptian army. Moving forward, Campaigns and war were going to become central once again. Finally, we have those obvious things that Akhenaten changed, or tried to change. The most famous aspect is the art. Akhenaten's reign marked a significant change in artistic practices in Egypt. The king introduced new styles, new forms, even new rules about what would be displayed and how the artists would show it. Many of Akhenaten's artistic policies would be undone by the following generations. The king's artistic style did not last in the long term. But some of the ideas he introduced did linger on for a little while. At the very least, some motifs would pop up here and there, for a couple of generations afterwards. Again, Akhenaten's artistic impact is not as big as we might expect. The changes he instituted were short-lived, at the very least in the visual sense. When it comes to architecture, though, the king actually did have a significant impact. As we saw in episode 134, 
Akhenaten's royal tomb at Amana introduced a new design. Previously, royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings had kind of corkscrewed. They turned and twisted as they descended into the rock. That probably simulated aspects of the underworld or the descent to the kingdom of Osiris. But Akhenaten did away with that twisting pattern. Instead, his royal tomb was a single straight line, a long series of corridors descending directly down into the rock. Future generations carried on with Akhenaten's reform. Kings like Horemheb used the new design as the default for their royal tombs. And the monuments of Dynasty 19, like Seti I and Ramesses II, are pretty much the same as Akhenaten's, just more impressive and expanded. So in that sense, Akhenaten actually did have an impact on royal tombs. He changed the design in a fundamental way, and future generations kept that new design. So that's kind of an impressive change, especially considering how prominent tombs are when we talk about ancient Egypt. When you go into many of the monuments in the Valley of the Kings, particularly those of dynasties 19 and 20, the design they follow is one that started with King Akhenaten. Artistic elements also play a big role in how we perceive Akhenaten. In particular, the king's unique style of art has given him a long legacy, both in history and in modern society. Obviously, the artistic medium is one that many people can access a lot more easily, at least compared to texts or archaeology. So Akhenaten's art is incredibly famous. Unfortunately, podcasts are not the best place to discuss Akhenaten's art and its influence. I'll come back to this topic if or when I do a YouTube series. For now, I'll just say that Akhenaten's symbolism and iconography, particularly the Aten, or images of Nefertiti, have been incredibly influential. They are referenced and homaged by modern artists and thinkers, and they have an enduring impact. The king's ideas also have filtered into modern Western philosophy, the ideas that Akhenaten put forth about his universal sun god and a god above all other beings has some relevance to the modern age. On the one hand, there are some very obvious parallels. Scholars like Sigmund Freud thought that Akhenaten might have been the biblical Moses, or at the very least, inspired parts of that story. Again, that's a really big question that doesn't necessarily have much concrete evidence within Egyptology itself. But the concept of Akhenaten as a prophet who led people out of one way of life to a new one is something that inspired certain individuals, and it continues to have relevance today. On the one hand, you can look at Akhenaten and see something strange and unusual in a negative sense, or you can see an individual someone breaking free of older traditions to promote new ideas. Both of those concepts are relatively valid in context, and even if you're more interested in the history of Akhenaten, the legacy of this king is quite potent, and he does inspire a lot of emotional feedback. Personally, I'm quite fond of Akhenaten. I think he's a fascinating figure, 
And I also think that the time period in which he lives is a really significant one for royal history. But leaving those sort of emotional questions aside, the king does have a reputation as a kind of dreamer or philosopher, someone who stands out from the other pharaohs for the ideas that he put forth, rather than the way he ruled. In this podcast, I've really emphasized the context of Akhenaten, and I've tried to examine him in the material that we know about him. But those ideas do have relevance for people, and it's worth considering. Depending who you talk to, you might get several different pictures of Akhenaten. On the one hand, there's the idea of the artist, a man in love with aesthetics and beauty, who changed visual representation and brought in new ideas that made Egyptian art more dynamic. Then there is the idea of the prophet, the religious leader who promotes new ideas and shakes up what used to be, someone who fundamentally reshapes aspects of the society. Other people might view Akhenaten as a cynic, someone who manipulates old traditions to serve his own purposes. In this point of view, the king's beliefs may not even be genuine, they might just be a mechanism for greater authority and greater control. That feeds into an idea of Akhenaten as a tyrant, a sort of megalomaniacal ruler who dominates everyone around him and tries to centralize authority so much that after he dies, everything that he had fell apart. What's interesting about Akhenaten is that any and all of these ideas could be valid depending on the evidence you're focusing on. Obviously, any historian worth their salt has to consider all of this material together, and the places where Egyptologists tend to stumble is when they follow one theory while ignoring evidence that contradicts it. But in the terms of Akhenaten, there is so much historical material, and yet so little certainty, that it is easy to arrive at radically different visions of the same individual. Various studies might take the same material and arrive at different conclusions, and although you might disagree with one or the other, they do all have some kernel of validity. Of course, the fact remains that the reality of Akhenaten died with the individual himself. People, humans, are complex, sometimes contradictory, and frequently inconsistent. So, although many aspects of Akhenaten's reign and expression might seem unusual to us, that might not have been the case for him or his contemporaries. Unfortunately, we are simply missing so much information that the core reality of who this man was, that is really impossible to grasp. From the historical perspective, Akhenaten's legacy is complex and fascinating. But of course, this king is famous around the world, and he has been a major part of Egyptian history ever since his rediscovery in the late 19th century. Akhenaten is not just a pharaoh of ancient Egypt, he has also become an icon for that culture. And many people in the modern age take inspiration from his story. 
In the next chapter, I want to discuss a little bit about Akhenaten's legacies as a pop culture phenomenon. The king has influenced many thinkers, artists, political and social leaders, and he continues to be a major drawcard for anyone interested in this time. So after the music, I want to grapple with Akhenaten in the modern world, some aspects of his representation and significance, and how people receive him. That's chapter 3, after the break. See you in a moment. Akhenaten has a long and complicated history within ancient Egypt and Egyptology. But even outside that, Akhenaten is a famous figure, and he has influenced many thinkers. Moving to things like pop culture, there is definitely an idea of Akhenaten that sort of transcends the historical figure. Thanks to popular works of fiction like Mika Waltari's novel The Egyptian, or Philip Glass's opera Akhenaten, we get a sense of this king as someone slightly removed from reality, a kind of dreamer or philosopher who pursues his beautiful sun god and yet denies all the things that are going on in Egypt. This vision of Akhenaten as a detached philosopher king, or a man so obsessed with his favoured god that he ignored the world around him, was a lot more popular in the early and mid-20th century. Back then, scholarly studies really emphasised the ways that Akhenaten was different from other pharaohs. Historians were interested in what made him unique, and they sometimes did not fully appreciate the things that he did, which were totally consistent with what came before. What I mean is that Akhenaten clearly was different from other kings, in some respects. But there is plenty of continuity in his reign, from what came before to what came after. Again, depending on the study you read or the sources you have available, the picture of the king can change quite substantially. It seems that when Mika Waltari wrote The Egyptian in the 1940s, she was building on an idea of Akhenaten as the religious fanatic, the man so obsessed with Aten that he ignored the world around him. Then, Philip Glass took aspects of that idea and built them into an ethereal, beautiful opera. Philip Glass's Akhenaten is a detached, almost angelic figure. The musical tones and the voice that he puts forth emphasize higher registers, which first of all remove him from traditional masculine archetypes, and secondly, emphasize that idea of something higher than himself, divinity incarnate, and divinity in the sun. So those pop culture images of Akhenaten do come from older scholarly traditions. That's fine, they're still lovely pieces of art in whatever their respective medium, but it's something to consider when you think about the image of who this king might have been. So in the early and mid-20th centuries, we had visions of Akhenaten as a detached philosopher, a religious fanatic, or simply a disinterested ruler. Then, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, 
we also get images of Akhenaten that build on modern political and social ideas. The king's sexuality, for instance, and his gender identity have come under a lot of scrutiny, and people are quite interested in this aspect. In some circles, Akhenaten has become an icon of inspiration for members of the LGBTQ community. Based on the king's artwork that emphasizes androgyny, you might view him as an intersex being or non-gender conforming. Likewise, depending how you read the evidence for Smenk Kare, you might see Akhenaten as a homosexual individual. Fair enough. The ancient Egyptian attitudes towards sexuality, what it meant to be a sexually active being, and how that tied into gender are necessarily different from 21st century Western ideals. What I mean is that historians will always tackle this subject very carefully. There is a huge amount of evidence to sift through, and understanding ancient concepts of gender in any culture is a decades-long process. At the same time, anyone can view images of Akhenaten and imagine him in their own private way. That will naturally lead to different visions of this person. Personally, I think that's pretty cool. If you view Akhenaten as an inspiration, or if the idea of this king helps clarify your own perceptions of gender, then that is a good thing in my opinion. One of my favorite things about Akhenaten is the way that he inspires reflection and thought. This takes many different forms, and all of them, I think, are valid. Akhenaten has also played a uniquely prominent role among pharaohs as an icon of African identity. Obviously, Egypt is in Africa, and its rulers and people are part of a larger African tradition. Within that framework, all ancient Egyptian activity and history is part of African history. But Akhenaten has somehow become a uniquely popular icon for the concept of Pan-Africanism and African heritage more generally. Again, the artistic imagery of Akhenaten plays into this, with many commentators seeing the king's portrait as an archetypal African visage. Akhenaten's religious beliefs also build into this. The king's image of Aten as a universal deity, one divorced from human imagery, has been tremendously inspirational for philosophers, political commentators, and artists throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Again, this is perfectly valid within context. One of the ideas Akhenaten promoted was the concept of Aten as a deity above all. The sun god ruled over the entire earth, and all peoples, regardless of cultural background, came to him and lived within Aten's light. In that sense, Aten, the universal deity, is the perfect symbol for anyone interested in cross-cultural unity, international solidarity, or simply philosophical and artistic inspiration. In other words, Akhenaten as an icon of African heritage is excellent, I think. Although the king's history leaves a lot to be desired as a person, he is certainly a fascinating figure, and the ideas that he promoted continue to have relevance today. I've really just scratched the surface of what Akhenaten has represented in the 20th and 21st centuries. This is a massive topic, and we're going to come back to many of these discussions repeatedly over the course of the podcast. If you are interested in Akhenaten's legacy specifically, 
and how he has been interpreted in the modern world, I highly recommend the book Akhenaten, History, Fantasy, and Ancient Egypt. This is by Dominic Montserrat, and it is a particularly thorough breakdown of what the king has come to represent. Montserrat covers Akhenaten's history and his legacy from a huge variety of perspectives. Obviously, he starts with archaeology, history, and the various concepts that go along with that. Then he dives into religion and philosophy, issues of monotheism and what the king might represent. He discusses Akhenaten as an African icon, Akhenaten and New Age spirituality, Akhenaten and the LGBTQ community, and even Akhenaten and fascism. The king's legacy is vast and complicated. I have barely scratched the surface here, but if you want to learn more about this ruler and what he has come to represent, I recommend this book, Akhenaten, History, Fantasy, and Ancient Egypt, by Dominic Montserrat. I have a few more book recommendations on various topics that I've covered in this episode. I've put those in the epilogue for those who are interested. For now, it is time to wrap this episode up. The reign of Akhenaten is, in hindsight, a moment of change, a pivot point in the history of ancient Egyptian royalty. The king's regime, his decisions, had an impact on many aspects of Egyptian society. Some of them were positive, some were negative, but they lingered and they continued to have an impact for generations after. Later, kings would react to the memory of Akhenaten quite aggressively. They would remove his name wherever they found it, and they would eventually refer to him by a euphemism, the enemy of Akhet Aten. The reaction against Akhenaten is something that will play out over the next few generations and episodes of the podcast. Long story short, many of the problems that later generations had seem to have been focused on Akhenaten himself. When it came to deleting this king, many of his ideas, like the Aten, were left alone. They were totally fine in many respects. But wherever they found the figure of the king and his wife Nefertiti, later generations tended to destroy them. Why this happened, what exactly it was that they reacted against, is a major theme in the next chapters of our story. While we leave the reign of Akhenaten now, it is important to remember that this king has a long legacy. His decisions have a big impact on what comes next. From a certain perspective, he is arguably one of the most influential rulers in ancient Egyptian history. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Stick around after the music for an epilogue in which I introduce some books that you might find interesting. These cover various topics that I've discussed today, but they go into each topic in a lot more detail. If you are interested in diving deeper into Akhenaten, this is the source to go for. Alternatively, visit the website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com, and you will find a bibliography for every episode released. If you would like to support the show, consider joining the podcast on patreon.com. 
Patreon subscribers can get exclusive perks like early releases, ad-free episodes, and occasional outtakes of extra material. Alternatively, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. Or, if you'd like to support in other ways, consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts. Every rating makes the show more visible and helps us to reach new listeners. If you'd like to support the History of Egypt podcast, follow the links in the episode description. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. It has been a long time since we had a large-scale study of Akhenaten's religion. The most recent book would be James Hofmeyer's Akhenaten and the Origins of Monotheism. This came out in 2015, and it is pretty thorough about the material. Unfortunately, Hofmeyer approaches the subject from a biblical perspective. He is much more interested in the origin of the later Abrahamic religions, and how Akhenaten might fit into that. So I recommend this book with a caveat. If you are interested in biblical history, it's definitely great. But if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of Egyptian religious beliefs and what Akhenaten was doing, this one only covers some of that. If you want to get into the nitty-gritty of Egyptian beliefs, I could recommend The Search for God in Ancient Egypt by Jan Asman. This was published in 2001, so it is a little bit out of date, but it is a wide-ranging discussion of Egyptian beliefs and what the evidence tells us about their ideas. The book covers the full scope of Egyptian religion, but it has a chapter dedicated to Akhenaten. If you want to get into some dense discussions, I recommend this book. If you are interested in Akhenaten as a royal figure, particularly one who was trying to gain power and authority, then you might be interested in the book Akhenaten, Egypt's False Prophet, by Nicholas Reeves. Reeves took an iconoclastic attitude to Akhenaten, cutting through much of the religious symbolism to analyse the king's reign from the perspective of power. In Reeves' discussion, Akhenaten might not have been all that interested in philosophy or religion in an abstract sense. For him, many of the king's initiatives seem to be more authoritarian. As if Akhenaten was trying to centralise power to gain control over different aspects of society. I don't fully agree with all of Reeves' conclusions. I think some of the evidence is more important than he suggests, and recent discoveries after his book was published have added a lot to our story. But it is a fascinating read, and if you are interested in another take on Akhenaten, I can definitely recommend Egypt's False Prophet by Nicholas Reeves. If you would like to learn more about the royal women of Amarna, then I could recommend a couple of books. Aidan Dodson's Amarna Sunrise and Amarna Sunset, 2nd edition, cover the various figures in quite a lot of detail, and he cites his evidence wherever necessary. Then there is Joyce Tildesley's Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon. This dives into the Nefertiti bust, the famous image of the Queen, now in Berlin. But Tildesley uses the opportunity to discuss what we know about Nefertiti and the world she inhabited, so it also provides an overview of royal women at Amarna. 
There are also some scholarly studies, museum catalogues, and various little discussions that you will find on the podcast website. Some of them are available as free online PDFs. So if you are interested in the royal women of this time, follow the link in the episode description. If you would like to learn more about Akhenaten and the elites, the high-ranking members of his society, there aren't any books that discuss this as a dedicated topic, but I have referenced some articles and discussions on the website. You will also find these topics cropping up in Aidan Dodson's books Amana Sunrise and Amana Sunset, and any good historical study of Akhenaten will deal with them to a greater or lesser extent. Discussions of elites and their role in Akhenaten's regime are more prominent in the past 10 to 20 years than they were beforehand. These days, scholars are much more interested in this topic. They're less focused on the pharaoh and much more intrigued by the people around him, the ones who ultimately decide what is happening in society. So, again, follow the link in the episode description if you want to learn more about Akhenaten and the elites. For Akhenaten's military legacy, there are a few important studies. The most significant would be Anthony Spellinger's War in Ancient Egypt, published in 2005. That book covers Egyptian warfare and the empire from the beginning of the 18th dynasty through the rest of the New Kingdom. You could also look at Ellen Morris's book Ancient Egyptian Imperialism, published in 2018. Ellen Morris is an excellent scholar who published her PhD based on the fortresses and bastions of Egypt's military zones. She then developed this into a discussion of the empire as a whole and its general historical trajectory. I use Morris's work a lot and it has been extremely influential on my own thinking. So, if you are interested in the empire, then Ancient Egyptian Imperialism by Ellen Morris will be your best bet. If you would like to learn more about Amana art, once again, I recommend Joyce Tildesley's book Nefertiti's Face. In the context of the Nefertiti bust, she dives into what Egyptian artists actually did to produce their work. There are also a huge variety of museum catalogues and articles that I've referenced on the podcast website, things that dive into some other aspects of ancient Egyptian artistry. As you can imagine, Amana art is a huge topic, and there hasn't really been a comprehensive study just on this topic for a long time. So, follow the links in the description if you want to learn more about art, architecture, and how Akhenaten influenced things. If you want to learn more about Akhenaten's identity, well, pretty much any historical study will touch on this in some way. The most recent would be Aidan Dodson's Amana Sunrise and Amana Sunset, but Dodson is far more interested in putting the evidence together into likely reconstructions and less concerned with biography or trying to get inside the head of Akhenaten. He does do this a little bit, but it's not the main focus of his work. Dodson is far more interested in recording what we know, how we know it, and what it might mean. If you want dedicated historical biography, then the most recent books would be Nicholas Reeves's Egypt's False Prophet, Donald Redford's Akhenaten the Heretic King, and Cyril Aldred's Akhenaten King of Egypt. Unfortunately, each of these books is 20, 30, and 40 years old, so they are all out of date in their historical data. 
All of these scholars did good work, so the books are still interesting to read. But you can't use them as historical sources anymore. Too much has changed since they were published. Again, I would recommend Aidan Dodson's Amana Sunset and Amana Sunrise. Although biography is not their main focus, they are the most up-to-date at the time I record this episode. Finally, there is Dominic Montserrat's Akhenaten, History, Fantasy and Ancient Egypt, which covers the legacy of the king and his reception in the modern world. It is a thorough book and covers a huge variety of topics. That's all from me. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. Before you go, don't forget to check out Classical Wisdom Speaks, a new podcast from classicalwisdom.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.